The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Happy Thursday, everyone. Wow. Back to a Monday-Thursday schedule. After last week's four-episode glut of History of Literature podcast episodes, glut is a good word for today. We're talking about the seven deadly sins, and gluttony is one of them, along with envy, greed, pride, lust, and sloth. Did I forget one? Wrath. Of course. How infuriating to forget that one. We should redo the seven deadly sins. They come from the Middle Ages and are a little stale. I can think of some better sins than those, frankly. But let's talk more about those later. Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, will be joining us to really dig in. But first, let's hear from some listeners. Oh, excuse me. Someone seems to be... Entering the door here at the Jack Wilson studio. This is Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar! That sound you hear. Yes. Bricks. (laughs) Bricks. Bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. That's not good. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. Mm. I am to be entombed, it seems. A pity, really. I have so much more to give. A pity it's happening in our studio. If only my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would come to my rescue. <laughs> He's outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman. Mm. But I fear he lacks sufficient funds. Mm. Yes. <sighs> Oh, won't you help him, you hard-hearted book lover? Won't you help him and me? Mm. Poor Edgar Allen talking directly to you, you hard-hearted book lover. Can't you help that noble whelp who's out there whelping, whelping away, doing his best to bribe the footman? Ah, poor Edgar Allan, all blocked off by those bricks. Just as in the horrendous... Just the... Where am I going here? Just like the horrendous fate of his character in that spine-chilling story, The Cask of Amontillado. Let's save him, shall we? He has so much more to give. You can do that by heading over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash literature and signing up for a small monthly contribution with your credit card or PayPal account. Your generosity is truly appreciated. This week, or this episode, I should say, we're thanking new patrons, Heidi and Jason. Many thanks to you and to all of our patrons, and to those who've chosen to donate on a one-time basis by heading over to historyofliterature.com slash shop and buying me a virtual coffee. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. So, let's hear from some listeners. Then we'll talk briefly about the seven deadlies. Then we'll have Mike join us for a draft of sins. 
Which of the sins is the best for literature? Which has the best pedigree? Which has been used the most often to the best effect? Which has the most potential? Kind of a fun topic today. We did not agree on everything, but I guess that's no surprise. He's the guy who threw Don Quixote into the wood chipper, after all. And yes, country of Spain, that was Mike, not Jack, who made that call. You can remove my name from your list. Your band list. I've been to Spain several times and enjoyed it very much, and I would like to visit again someday. Please do let me back in. Okay, we're saving all the emails about Baldwin and Faulkner and police and protesters for next week. I'm planning a compilation of sorts. We're going to look at Henry David Thoreau also and his essay on civil disobedience and see how that translates into today's world. And we're going to spend some time with Thoreau out at Walden Pond and have an interview with an author who followed in his footsteps somewhat with her own year in nature. That's next week. Email from Carol. Subject, thank you. Dear Jack, I am one of millions, I'm sure, writing these same words to you. Thank you very much for the brilliance of your podcast. I am by trade a nurse, now a school nurse, and have so fortunate and have... Sorry, let me read that again. Now a school nurse, and have so fortunately met up with a well-read colleague. He graciously and surreptitiously shared your podcast with me. He has sworn me to secrecy regarding you. <laughs> we both adore the Magic Mountain and all glorious writing and have been disgusted by our colleagues not appreciating excellent literature. Their preference for TMZ and Chicklet has driven us underground to revel in unpretentious and joyful readers like you and Mike. And we work in a school! <laughs> In every episode, you mention a book or author I admire and have given me so many good book recommendations. I wish we worked together. Where have you been all my life? Happy reading. Thank you for making me feel not alone. Yes, I've read Moby Dick three times and intend to read it three more. The best book I have read is Midnight's Children, but my favorite is still Lonesome Dove. You are my idea of a superhero. Respectfully and gratefully, Carol. Oh, Carol, you are one of millions, millions, Carol. Try billions. Okay. Okay, I tried that joke out with my kids, and my younger said, my younger son said that I should say, try ones to tens. <laughs> I am one of ones to tens, writing to you, Jack Wilson. Ones to tens. I am truly the Rodney Dangerfield of my house. You know, I'm afraid to show my kids Rodney Dangerfield, even though I think they would like him, either Caddyshack or Back to School or even his stand-up. I've avoided all of those. I'm sure they would like him, but now I'm a little worried about what would happen if I showed them Rodney Dangerfield. We watched Ferris Bueller the other day, the movie. And I was watching it thinking my own thoughts, and as usual, I was thinking, am I Ferris or am I Cameron? Other people might think of me as Ferris. Maybe that's what I project to the outside world, but secretly, I'm Cameron inside. Or maybe I'm a little of both. Maybe I'm a combination of Ferris and Cameron. And then the principal came on, Rooney, and he tripped or fell in the mud or something. And my boy said, oh, that's so dad. 
And they showed Ferris's father in his office, on the phone, picking his teeth, not seeing his son below in the parade. And my boy said, no, 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 that's so dad. That's dad. And I realized that they are looking at all the grown-ups, all the authority figures, and they're seeing me in them. They're looking for me in them. And I'm thinking, don't you get it? I'm not the grown-ups. I'm Ferris or Cameron or one of the protagonists. I'm the one looking for love, looking for meaning. I'm not the comic foil. I'm the star. So, no Rodney Dangerfield. Because my kids won't be laughing with me at Rodney. They will be laughing at me and Rodney. But Carol, I love this email. I'm so glad you found that colleague of yours and that the two of you have included me in your secret little literary cabal at a school. <laughs> That's such a great line. And we work in a school! Exclamation mark. I truly laughed out loud. Those teachers who've fallen for the mighty temptress TMZ while you and your fellow colleague are maintaining your distance, quietly hanging on to some standards for yourselves. You two are awesome, and I am glad to be with you. Where have I been all your life? I don't know. I've been here. I, I guess, Carol, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Not that you need one, when you can occupy yourselves with Rushdie and McMurtry and Melville. They've been my proxies until I could find you, Carol. But now we're together. You and me and your surreptitious colleague swearing you to secrecy in our clandestine mission to occupy the school, intellectually speaking. Next email is from Levi. Subject, Edith Wharton meeting F. Scott Fitzgerald. Jack, I've been loving all of these extra episodes lately, although I must say it's hard to keep up. I'm just as busy as ever during this lockdown because my job can be done from home. Furthermore, I have no commute to listen to the HOL on, and so find myself struggling to find the right time to listen. Must catch up. After listening to your recent episode on Edith Wharton, I started researching her, and I must say I'm very surprised that you didn't mention her encounter with F. Scott Fitzgerald. She was 34 years older than he, and he greatly looked up to her. He was fascinated with people in high society exactly like her, and the story has it, he was thoroughly crushed by her rejection of him following a couple of meetings they had. According to Fitzgerald, their first encounter was when he burst in on her meeting with her publisher, who was also his publisher, and kneeling in obeisance at her feet. This alone is a remarkable story. I'm trying hard to imagine how the writerly type could do such a thing. It sounds ridiculous. Where's the pride? And how can you view another human being? with such adulation. Obviously, I'm looking at it from a different time, but it also really makes me want to know what was going on with Fitzgerald. Their second meeting was after his publishing The Great Gatsby in 1925, when she invited him to tea. According to some accounts, he made quite a fool of himself, probably nervous, probably drinking too much, but at any rate, Edith's diary entry of the event says it all. Quote, To tea, Teddy Chanier, and Scott Fitzgerald, the novelist. Awful. End quote. That story can be found here. He gives a link. The story expands a little bit when this article points out that his, quote, his most famous novel, The Great Gatsby, was about a parvenu 
who died because of his love for a woman who belonged to the same elite class as Edith Wharton, end quote. When they had that fateful meeting, 1925, she had already won the Pulitzer Prize four years prior for The Age of Innocence. Meanwhile, his novel, The Great Gatsby, wasn't considered anything all that important yet. It did not achieve widespread success until after Fitzgerald had died. So I'm reading some things into this meeting. She's the old guard up on the hill, the first woman to win the Pulitzer. And on top of that, she's the high society kind of woman that he's obsessed with. And he's just written this book all about those feelings. He must have felt absolutely scared shitless to meet her. All of this sounds exactly like the thing, the kind of thing you like to cover on the show. It's occurring to me that perhaps you already covered it in a previous episode, and it's one of the few I haven't listened to yet. If so, then sorry. But I thought I'd go ahead and send this anyway, on the chance that it is helpful. Yours truly, Levi. Oh, I love this email. Thank you, Levi, the researcher. I love the interaction between Fitzgerald and Wharton. That was one of his problems, actually. Hero worship. It's also something appealing about him. He's kind of the... Paul McCartney of The Lost Generation, brimming with talent, but also a little insecure, looking to John Lennon for approval. In Fitzgerald's case, we see him looking for that with Edmund Wilson and Hemingway and Ring Lardner and Wharton and Joyce and some others too. And sometimes it's fine and sometimes a little embarrassing. I think he was overzealous, a little overzealous at times, but he was young and enthusiastic, and he didn't handle his alcohol all that well, which took him into some bad places. When he met Joyce at a dinner arranged by famous Parisian bookstore owner Sylvia Beach, he kneeled at Joyce's feet and kissed his hand and said, How does it feel to be a great genius, sir? I am so excited at seeing you, sir, that I could weep. Joyce was unimpressed. Later he said, that young man must be mad. I'm afraid he'll do himself an injury someday. Ah, poor Fitz. Thank you for the email, Levi. One other story your email reminded me of. That description by Edith Wharton. Awful. <laughs> what a great entry in her diary. Had dinner with Scott Fitzgerald. Awful. Once when I was traveling in China, in remote western China, at the foothills of the Tibetan Plateau, there was a famous Chinese doctor, a medicine man, I'm not sure of the right word. A health guru. And you could go visit his house and listen to his philosophy about how to heal the mind and body. And I did this. And I was leafing through the guest book afterwards, and there was the famous entry from John Cleese. One of my heroes, the Monty Python, Faulty Towers John Cleese, fish called Wanda, who had visited with Michael Palin not long before. And Cleese had written as his entry, Nice bloke, crap tea. Here's an email I love from Evanston, Illinois, home of the great Northwestern University. Subject, on the history of literature. Jack Talk Good. B. Evanston, Illinois. I love this. It's an utterance, a cry from the heart, a sort of primitive grunt with a beautiful compliment embedded within it. It's like a little poem. There's no punctuation. A Zen Cohen. Jack talk good. Thank you, B. Thank you very much. It's all I need to hear. It's enough to sustain me. Jack talk good. Jack hopes so. Jack thanks you. 
Last one is an email from Jake. Subject, thank you, Jack. Dear Jack, I've been listening to your show for almost a year, and I can't express how much it means to me. Going for walks while listening to podcasts has been one of my favorite pastimes for years now, but sadly, I had not yet found a good one on the topic of literature. The fact is, I had been looking for a show like yours for many years, but I just couldn't find one until about a year ago. The first episode I heard was your show on Emerson, who I've been obsessed with for many years. I remember sitting in an auto shop, in an auto shop waiting room, happily listening to the show and thinking, thank God I have the ability to eavesdrop on this fascinating conversation. I felt as if I'd made a new friend. Fast forward to today, and I have listened to countless hours of your show. I usually listen to your show while hiking in the gorgeous Ozarks wilderness. You probably don't know what the Ozarks is, but I will tell you that it is an unbelievably part, beautiful part of this country. Let me read that again. I will tell you that it is an unbelievably beautiful part of the country. It's probably America's best-kept secret. Anyway, I have fond memories of hiking at a tranquil Missouri con conservation area while listening to your episode on Madame Bovary. What a great episode. I will always think of that book and your story when I return to that place. Or when I explored the picturesque Welsh Springs in southern Missouri while listening to one of your John Keats episodes. That was such a great day. And you were a part of it. Forgive my rambling. The main point of this email is this. I am thankful to you for introducing me to some really outstanding authors. Several weeks ago, I was hiking again when I listened to your show about Thomas Hardy. Before this, I barely had heard of the man. In fact, when I started the episode, I mistakenly thought it was about the author of Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, which of course is Dylan Thomas. Anyway, the episode really intrigued me. Shortly after, I bought his Far From the Madding Crowd and absolutely fell in love with it. While reading it, I found out that one of my friends, parentheses, who I am partially in love with, in parentheses, is a big fan of Hardy and was also reading one of his books at the time. What are the chances? I loved texting back and forth with her as we shared our thoughts on the book. Unfortunately, she lives in England, so I never get to see her anymore. But that's another story. Another author you've introduced me to is Saul Bellow. How have I lived my entire life without ever hearing of this man? Why did I not encounter his work at college? How did I get an English degree without having heard this man's name? Anyway, I recently read Herzog and was fascinated by it. Thanks again. Now, after your most recent show, I am resolved to check out some Borges. He's another name that was completely unfamiliar to me. I am in your debt. Hearing you and Mike talk books makes me want to read all day. Seriously. Thank you for enriching my life. With admiration, Jake. P.S. I hate to be negative, but I must tell you that I was quite disappointed in your episode about literary cities. I noticed that even Portland received an honorable mention, but you failed to even once make a passing comment about Concord, Massachusetts. Perhaps you have a reason for leaving it out. Perhaps I shouldn't be angry. Could you, agree? Could you address this on your show? Anyway, sorry for the outburst. I still think your show is amazing. Oh, Jake. Okay, yes, we can add Concord to the list. It should have been an honorable mention. Don't be angry. I think we ran out of time. We do have Thoreau coming up, so maybe we maybe we can uh, 
rectify that. Maybe that will assuage you. But really, Jake, I'd like to talk about something else. First, thank you very much for the handsome letter. This is incredible. I'm flattered and honored. But there is a parenthesis we should discuss. Who I am partially in love with. Who I am partially in love with. Jake, I encourage you to think this one through. You found out your friend is a fan of Thomas Hardy, as are you. The two of you have that in common, and you are already partially in love with her. If you've heard the Madame Bovary episode, you know that I once traveled from Nepal to Morocco on an odyssey to find someone I was partially in love with and then became wholly in love with, and that has worked out pretty well. Traveling to England, is that maybe a possibility at some point? Can you kindle this fire? It's none of my business, I know, except for the role I'm playing here as literary Cupid. What about Carol and her colleague? That sounds like a friendship. I'm not going to force the issue there. But this one, where you hinted that maybe there's some possibility. I was worried when the parentheses started you were going to say, unfortunately she's married, unfortunately she's taken. But no. No, 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 no. She just lives in England. That's surmountable. Hmm, Thomas Hardy of all writers. Let's explore it a little, shall we, Jake? Keep your mind open to it anyway. I know it's none of my business. Keep your mind open. And your heart. We could have another Tommy Ampersand Karen situation here. The two who went to a Halloween party as Hamlet and Ophelia. Literature is a dying flame. It can use some light and some heat, some new oxygen, a breath of fresh air, whenever we can get the chance. Keep it in mind, Jake, and keep us posted. Okay, a quick break, and then The Seven Deadly Sins. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So, the seven deadly sins were created by Roman Catholicism, enumerated by Pope Gregory the Great, in the 6th century 
and promulgated by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. I can't believe we haven't done an episode on Aquinas yet. That needs to go on the list. He's an amazing thinker and writer and has a fascinating life story. In any case, the idea was that these were the sins that took you away from God. They're not the same as commandments or crimes, obviously. We're not talking about murder or adultery or theft. Those are actions. These are states of mind, internal problems, blemishes on your soul. These are qualities of your character. And they can be overcome by the seven corresponding virtues. Instead of pride, you have humility. Instead of greed, you have charity. Instead of lust, chastity. Instead of envy, the corresponding virtue is gratitude. Gluttony is replaced by temperance. Wrath is replaced by patience. Sloth is replaced by diligence. There's something very appealing about this formulation of seven deadly sins and seven corresponding virtues. The human spirit, the human animal, loves lists, enumerations, categorizations, checklists, to-do items. They help us stay organized and stay productive. Imagine someone handing you the Bible and saying, here you go, here's the Word of God, follow what this tells you to do, you will find your way to heaven. So you open it up, and start reading about Adam and Eve, and then Moses, and then Cain and Abel, or Jonah and Noah and Job and Jesus, and you're jumping around, you're reading about wars and generations, begetting other generations, and sermons and prophets, and an eye for an eye, and turn the other cheek, and a golden rule, and a Lord's Prayer, and rendering unto Caesar, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the nativity scene, kind of a lot to absorb, right? That would take a lifetime. It does take a lifetime. But what if you're trying to change your life all at once, right now, and you don't have weeks or months to absorb the entire Bible and all its ambiguities and all its nuances and all its paradoxes? What if you can't tease out the meaning in each and every passage all at once and make sense of it and use it as a guide to your life? Well, here's a list. Ten Commandments. Pow. Follow these. Or here's a prayer. Bam, say this. Here's a golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Simple, boiled down, focused. If you're in the long, dark night of the soul, this can help. You need an answer. You need one now. The seven deadly sins kind of come in that vein. Here are seven. These are bad. Avoid them. Do this instead. Don't let lust rule your actions. Don't let greed. Don't let sloth. And so on. They also serve as a kind of badge to wear. Here's what we stand for, we Christians. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's our project. We're in favor of moderation, of humility, of patience, of diligence. Join us if you'd like. Respect us, even if you don't. That's all part of the history of theology or religion, But what about literature? Well, the seven deadly sins caught the popular imagination. Thanks to Aquinas and the medieval mind, they became prominent in art, including literature. Dante took a look and said, Here we go. These are all perversions of the same thing, I think. Love. Lust and gluttony and greed is loving the wrong thing or loving it too much. Sloth is when you don't have enough love. Wrath and envy and pride are when love goes bad and turns harmful. He designed his middle book, 
Purgatorio, around the seven deadly sins, he ranked them from worst to best on the principle that taking you away from God was the worst possible thing you could do. Pride was the worst on his list. That's when you were the farthest from God. Pride in yourself was a problem. You needed humility in order to truly love God. Envy and wrath were next. How was he coming up with this? Dante argued that rationality, humans' ability to reason, was the best thing God gave humans, the greatest gift, and so abusing it was the worst. The closer we are to animal instincts, the less we're abusing this special gift that God has given humans. You can see that as you climb the ladder in Dante's Purgatorio. Pride is a very human thing, and so is envy. Wrath comes next. That's getting a little more animalistic, right? Then sloth, which is where you start to get into the physical body. Being lazy is a physical thing. Greed is next. That's physical in a sense. And then gluttony, which definitely is eating too much. And then lust is almost purely physical. That's the least troubling for Dante because it has the least reason associated with it. It's kind of fascinating the way he turned that around. You might think it would go the other way. The more like an animal we are, the more we are separate from God, the more we've ignored our special gift that God has given us. But no, nope, as it's the other way around. The seven deadly sins also made their way into other great works from the era. They're characters in a book by William Langland called Piers the Plowman, or as I first heard it, Piers the Pluffman which I learned from my Scottish professor way back when. The late 14th century, this book came from. The Seven Deadly Sins show up again in Chaucer in The Parson's Tale, and in Spencer's The Fairy Queen, where a lady of the house, Lucifera, not exactly subtle, has advisors who all represent the Seven Deadlies. They were, the sins were prominent in morality plays as well, and why not? What a great idea to have seven characters come on stage. Seven deadly sins to come on stage to tempt a hero, to do battle with a hero or an everyman, and just to see how they get along with one another. Here's wrath. Look at how angry he is. The others are keeping their distance. Here's gluttony, a little comic relief. He can't stop eating. Here's lust. Well, we know what's on his mind. Obviously, he's up to no good. Here's greed and envy, arm in arm, working together, and so on. We don't have a Shakespeare play called The Seven Deadly Sins, but maybe that's because his troupe of actors had already done one. In 1585, Richard Tarleton and the Queen Elizabeth's men staged a version of it with Burbage playing one of the characters. That play has not survived. Hey, screenwriters... Here's an idea for you. Shakespeare gets a hold of the Seven Deadly Sins play and turns it into a play of his own. That's what he did, right? He used existing sources as his launch pad. Shakespeare makes a masterpiece called The Seven Deadly Sins, and the church censors it, and it's lost forever. But guess what? There's a copy hidden in the Vatican. Aha! Shakespeare giving the seven deadly sins his own special twist would be something I would pay money to see, even if it's just 
an imaginary pot boiler of a movie. As we moved into the modern era, the Seven Deadlies became a little more historical, but we see them appearing in novels and the thoughts of writers, not as crudely as seven characters with those names, perhaps, but as themes and principles and sources of conflict, both internal and external. When we come back, Mike and I will take a look at some of those modern-day uses of the seven deadly sins. We'll talk about which ones resonate today, which ones don't work so well, and whether there are any new sins which deserve some future consideration. Maybe we should expand to nine, or maybe a few of the old ones are ready for retirement. The seven deadly sins in today's literature after this. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president and chief sinner at the Literature Supporters Club. He's here here today to help me sort through the seven deadly sins as we see them in literature. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jack. So we're going to have a draft of the seven deadly sins where we each take three sins for their literary potential. And I, I don't know how you what you used for your methodology here. We can either imagine we're going to write a novel and see which sin would make the best theme, or we could look at past works and see what great authors have been able to do with the sins, or how did you approach this subject? I think I started with what have people done yeah. with the material. Right. But then I think informing that was what what's the future of this sin? Right. You know, where, where, where can we go with this? And yeah. So what potential does it have? Some tests I developed were things like, could this carry a book by itself? Or mm-hmm. could my protagonist have this trait? Or would it just be a, a villain or a minor character? And is there something interesting to explore here? Or are we just watching the character act? You know, is it is it kind of one dimensional? Yeah. And also I started to, as I was going through this, started to feel like certain sins um, I'm in the mood for them because I want to sink into mm, mm-hmm. the character and other times I just want like kind of a, you know, a drug rush. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> you know, that, that's the sin I, I'd like to, to get. And maybe it was part of sort of a reflection of my own personality that sometimes I thought of one sin as like, eh, inferior, but then I was remembering something that I, uh, I had repressed Yeah, among, among the books I liked. Right. <laughs> it was a pretty interesting uh, research. I did not expect it to go the way it did. And in, in my analysis, a few jumped out as being yeah. very worthy and a few sank to the bottom. And then it turned out there were more at the bottom than at the top for me. So why don't we jump in? I'll give you the first pick. What is your top literary sin? I think it's got to be wrath. Ooh. I mean, I think it's, you know, <laughs> I mean, all, all, you know, various number of writers have said that all writing is like 90% of writing is revenge. Yeah. You know, and when I think of the best imagery and the best emotional charge, I think of wrath and mm. 
Um, I, I thought immediately of Blood Meridian. Oh, right. Probably all of Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's a wrathful writer. And it, I think it's also challenging because there's so many books about wrath that to explore it um, the way Cormac McCarthy has is incredible. Like he has this image in Blood Meridian. He says, the carrion birds sat about the topmost corners of the houses with their wings outstretched in attitudes of exhortation like dark little bishops. Mm. And just the whole, <laughs> the book is just filled with all this. It's almost like descriptions of toys and games, you know, and, yeah. and then there's just, you know, horrible violence. Yeah. That's the thing about wrath and books about sustained wrath are kind yeah. of rare, but every book can benefit from a good dose of wrath. It spices things up. Sustained wrath. I mean, a clockwork orange is a good book about a sustained wrath or, like mm-hmm. you said, revenge stories like the Count of Monte Cristo, you could say, is about wrath, or Moby Dick is about wrath. Oh, yeah, I think. yeah. And uh, the pay the payoff the payoff is very satisfying for the reader. If we're going to talk about you know, yeah. you know, the reader's perspective and the pleasure it comes from getting revenge and yep, you know, even from our day to day lives, like you know, you can have like a comic novel like Lucky Jim, and the moments of revenge are so satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, wrath can feel really good, and it can feel like really wrath. good to yeah. to have it. You know, you can really identify with a wrathful character. Uh, or wrath can be really righteous, like James Baldwin is full of wrath, but it's it feels justified. There's, you know, some of these we're going to see, there's not much of a positive aspect to them. But wrath is one where you can feel like wrath might be, uh, what is the... Have you seen the John Wick movies? <laughs> I've seen the first one, and someone was just saying to me that I should really see it through to the end and watch all three. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I guess we've watched, I don't know if we've watched the third one yet, but the, the first one sort of famously is they kill his dog, right? And so he, he goes on this, <laughs> like, this bender of wrath uh, because they've killed his dog. So I, I was sort of laughing at that being a, a justification for it. But there are movies and film or films and novels where uh the wrath is justified you know the family is someone's family is killed or someone is really wronged and then the wrath feels uh it doesn't feel like it just comes out of nowhere it feels like uh it's wrath that you yourself could maybe participate in if those circumstances had happened to you yeah and i i I think one of the most appealing things about wrath is it feels so unmediated and that it, it it seems like it's been around for 200,000 years. Oh yeah. You know, right. like when I see <laughs> care when I when I see Carrie the film and I read Carrie the the emotions there just seem so like we're back in the cave. Mm. You know, and that yep. I think that's very engaging in 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 literature it's almost like you know yeah like you're saying the challenge is to sustain it because once you show the wrath card you know what do you do with it? Yeah, um, because it can be very much like okay, now, now we're heading toward that ultimate battle between good and evil, or between you know evil and even worse. Yeah, and so like, what do you do on the way there? Yeah, which is hard. Yeah, and when you say that it it has this this past, I mean the wrath of God is actually a, a phrase. It, there's a, it's very biblical wrath. Yeah, when you uh, 
you're right when you say you can go back to the cave, you could go back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah, I mean, the so in Blood Meridian, the sociopath, the judge, he is, he, he makes quite a number of sermons. And one of them is this great uh, disquisition on war. He says, war is the ultimate game because war is at last a forcing of the unity of existence. War is God. Mm. It's awesome. <laughs> it's it, it really, this is probably the only time I agree with Harold Bloom. <laughs> We've had a few requests for Cormac McCarthy, so we should, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that I mean, might I be a be, good one be on our afraid. list. Uh, okay, well, let me take my uh, first pick. And actually, you did not take my number one because oh. I had Wrath at number two. Uh, mm-hmm. For number one, I took Envy. And mm-hmm. I thought Envy, what I love about Envy, there's great potential here. It's very relatable. We've all felt it, even the best of us, even at the best of times. Envy is always right around the corner, and it's it's long mm. and slow. I I contrasted this specifically with Wrath, because Wrath was so high on my list. But Wrath might be a moment in time or a quick bubbling over, but Envy is this constant simmer. With Envy, people make plans, and Envy, it produces conflict. You know, you have... Yeah. It makes you hate a nice person for no reason. Or you could be your own worst enemy because of the envy within you that you can't control. So Othello is the great paradigm here. Madame Bovary is also about envy. The Sun Also Rises has a lot of good envy in it. Uh, Anna Karenina, as she envies the men who aren't scorned for what they've done. Uh, Elena Ferrante is really good with envy. And then books like The Talented Mr. Ripley or Passing by Nella Larson. And here's the dirty little secret. I think one of the reasons why envy is so prominent in literature is most writers suffer from it. They <laughs> hate their fellow authors for their success or they're envious of a, a book that, you know, or a poem that has been written. And that's why they know it so well. So uh, and then I had one other theory about envy is that a lot of the other sins are trying to avoid envy, you know, the <laughs> lust or greed or gluttony. They're almost about uh, the avoidance of envy. You you don't want to be in the situation of envying others, so you want it. You want the thing. You want the gold, or you want the sex, or you want the food, uh, because it would kill you if others would have it and you didn't. I think envy, I, I had it lower down on my list because it, it always seems to appear with another sin, mm-hmm. which... Um, it, you know, overshadows envy, but maybe, yeah. maybe I'm thinking of it. The the one novel I thought where the envy really is beautifully done that came to mind um, that you didn't mention was uh, Enduring Love by Ian McEwan. Mm-hmm. That kind of relationship envy, um, yeah, and sexual envy, yeah, yeah. I looked at it. I didn't look at it as that made it secondary. I looked at it as as if that made it supreme, that it it was mm-hmm. so all-encompassing that it's almost like the other deadly sins uh, can't live without envy. Well, I for my second, I it, this was the harder one, because to me, wrath was clear-cut number one. But I went with greed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think in terms, and this is where, in, in terms of potential material, uh, it, it's just limitless. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it's just, it's kind of like capitalism. It, you know, they, there's a great quote by, uh, I think, Zizek, 
or maybe Frederick Jameson, he said that we can imagine the end of the world before we can imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> greed. For greed to work, I actually had that pretty low on my list. I had it as number five. And yeah. I think part of it was because I my first note I put down here was not sure what it adds beyond envy. Uh, you know, Macbeth is about greed, but isn't it also about envy or Lear? I guess you could say is greed. Two of the daughters are greedy at least. But I tend to think of greed as being, you know, a villain, Mr. Potter or Scrooge McDuck diving in his gold coins or some Dickens characters are really good at greedy. I didn't know how interesting greed is because you're automatically a villain. Uh, but when you think of it in terms of society, like the movie yeah. Wall Street or something, then it's pretty interesting that if you're saying greed is what's animating everyone around me or greed is the uh, sort of like the devil we've come to live with that we invited to dinner and he took over. Looking at greed in that way does make it kind of interesting as a backdrop for what a lot of characters are doing. I mean, I, th I thought of F. Scott Fitzgerald and mm. more more contemporary writers like Martin Amos. Mm. Um, he has a great yeah. line in this money. book, Money. Yep. He says, money doesn't mind if we say it's evil. It goes from strength to strength. It's a <laughs> fiction, an addiction, and a tacit conspiracy. Uh, yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, I think there's a lot of uh, room for character transformation with greed because it's so black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, and I, I, I think people either overtly or, you know, secretly love to read about money. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole like crazy rich Asians thing, you know, you, you know, mm, it's, you yeah. know, it's tasteless and tacky, but you know, it's diverting and you'll, you, you know, you'll watch it. Yeah. So I find the downfall very satisfying, but again, maybe it, it's interesting that our picks are so so divergent maybe it, it yeah. really is kind of a, a, a you know a sign of our personalities i think so i think i see things uh more complexly or more intelligently and you tend <laughs> to reduce things to kind of a primitive almost kindergarten like approach <laughs> i just i just go with what's what's good you, <laughs> and, and, and and you 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 uh parse things through till the life is <laughs> the life is gone. Yeah. <laughs> right. I don't think it you're you're working with primary colors here, I can see. <laughs> I'm I'm doing the chiaroscuro. <laughs> okay. Although setting that aside, I'm gonna take my number two, which was number three on my list, which is lust. And so uh I will I feel quite comfortable that with lust I will outsell all of the uh all of the other sins combined. Um, this is one everyone likes reading about, um, or I think most people do, but it's a bit scary for writers because I think they hate writing about sex uh, because you can fall flat on your face when you do it. But, you know, for a Philip Roth or a John Updike who can take it on, or Chaucer or D.H. Lawrence, Flaubert again, uh, the Brontes, even Jane Austen sort of verges on lust. It's interesting as one of the deadly sins because i think it's the most biological of all the sins except for maybe gluttony but it it it's sort of uh you know greed and envy and wrath and pride are mental issues they're they're psychological issues but lust adds this physical sexual component and it makes it 
kind of aggressive and antagonistic. There's the body is involved, but it can also feel kind of helpless. There's a helplessness that you you can be a victim of these physical urges. And then I thought, am I am I focusing too much on sex? Uh, there's also you could combine them with the others like greed. You could have a lust for gold or a lust for glory and applying that, that deep urge to things, to the other deadly sins is it's interesting because it makes characters capable of anything as they try to get what they want. Uh, and as they're, as they tilt a little bit out of control, it's a rich, uh, sin to have in your arsenal as you're trying to put together a, a book that's going to sustain the reader's interest. I had less solo. Yeah. <laughs> you had it at, all the way down? Yeah. <laughs> the last? It was the last. Yeah. <laughs> I I just, I think sex is so hard to write about. Yeah. yeah. People who do it, like Chuck Palahniuk and, you know, William yeah. Burroughs and Henry Miller. I think, I think it's, you almost have to, it's almost a fascinating capsule mm. type uh you know view you know uh, literature like we're you know i'm rereading henry miller right now for a book club and it must have just been gangbusters at the time it was written you know (laughs) but you know it's just you know and then you read about yeah in 1922 a high school teacher in illinois was arrested for mentioning darwin Mm. i mean (laughs) yeah it's kind of like that thing with lust. I mean, I think uh, yeah. 25 years from now, 50 year, fifty shades of gray, people will look at that and be like, wow, that was really romantic. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, there is a problem with lust as it manifests, it manifests itself in books where, like it's one thing if you're Flaubert and you make the lust of a character kind of drive that character into making decisions and, and making some bad choices and things like that. But the the downside of today's age where we can be so explicit is you tend to get writers, especially these male writers, especially that era of Updike mm-hmm. and Roth and, and Mailer and Bellow, where you feel like they're writing to turn themselves on, you know, right. that they want to have these scenes where their protagonist is is like a Casanova and conquering all these uh, sexual partners and so on. And, and when you read that, it's, it's not titillating. It's more, um, you feel like you're not, I mean, at its worst, you just feel sort of embarrassed for the author. Uh, (laughs) But even, you know, most of the time, even when it's not, when the writing isn't bad, you still mm-hmm. feel like you're not experiencing what the author is intending for you to experience. It's almost like they're they're telling they're trying to tell jokes and you're finding them not funny, but you can tell that the author thinks they're funny. It's <laughs> kind of like that. The author thinks, "Oh, this is really sexy. This is really racy. Uh, this is uh, this is exciting." And you read it and you think, "Well, it's it's explicit, but I'm not feeling what I think the author is intending for me to feel here." I yeah. I mean, I, I wrote that. It, lust would be much higher if this was from the perspective of like a 15 year old mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe this is uh <laughs> you know it's like years of experience of looking back on these sins yeah right 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 <laughs> yeah maybe we're uh we're you know we've we've getting to the that age where we've sort of seen it all 
Yeah. So whose turn is, oh, it's your turn. So your what is your number three? So I, I, I kind of wanted to pick one to make it super challenging for me because I feel like gluttony would be not picked. But then I, I kind of, I, I took the easy road and took sloth. Yeah, that I would think, be next on my list too. Yeah, I think sloth, sloth is the easiest sin to be funny about. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Confederacy of Dunces comes to mind. So many books. <laughs> I mean, The Good Soldier Schweck. Like, yeah. You know, catch parts of lar- long parts of Catch Twenty Two. Mm-hmm. Then I think it's also very easy for the reader to relate to, like yeah. Bartleby. Yep. Because the act of reading, it's not exactly passive, but you know, there's something about the patience right. and right. the mental faculties required to read and. You know, I think a lot of the greatest characters that are indecisive tend to have something else going for them. And so it, it's the sin that kind of, I wrote, contrasts best with other sins. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if, if you have a slothful character facing, uh, you know, someone who's like super well organized and, you know, envious, it, it makes it all the funnier. To, to see them thrown into relief. Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of flaws. Those right. kind of things. Right. So. It, 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 the first thing I thought when I saw Sloth on the list is I thought, well, that'll be number seven, you know, <laughs> because it just seems like what's interesting about uh, laziness or inaction? How does that, how does that yeah. help a narrative? But then when, yeah, I, I came to the same point you did where I thought, oh, actually, if you include indecision, then you have Hamlet and and Bartleby and Holden Caulfield and The Stranger oh, yeah. and you know you can include that and that's got a pretty good literary pedigree and you can give characters if you're an author you can give characters interesting reasons why they can't act and yeah. dilemmas and internal dilemmas and you can put them in situations where they really should act and they can't bring themselves to and that's I don't know if yeah. that's kind of it might be stretching the definition of sloth a little bit you know in Bartleby like I don't know if that sloth his his inaction was very active in those denials there was something about it but but I I kind of came to the same point you did which is I'll just include it in sloth and that that was enough to bump it up to number four on my list yeah I mean in Confederacy of Dunces there's a great scene where a policeman stops Ignatius rally and says, you, you got a job? And he goes, I dust a bit. In addition, I am at the moment writing a lengthy indictment against our century. When my brain begins to reel from my literary labors, I make the occasional cheese dip. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, who can't relate to that? You know, like, yeah. it's, it, sloth to me is also a bit of a, you know, the fantasy that people want, the way they want to behave when they're up against somebody who's like super bureaucratic and mm-hmm. super demanding. And yep. you just want to, you just want to like halt them in their tracks and just be like, you know, you're missing it. You're missing what life is. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're, you're a uh, hamster on the treadmill. You're, you're running furiously and getting nowhere. And it would be better for you to just relax and calm down. I'm not going to get anywhere either, but at least I'm not going to be duped (laughs) like you are. And I I think, you know, sloth, the structure of books that have itself a slothful aspect I love, like 
Zeno's conscience. Mm, yeah. You know, <laughs> I was looking at that and just coming across great lines like, you know, the fancies of wine are authentic events. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, the, the chapter on trying to quit smoking. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's such a great, you know, I mean, it, it, I think Sloth is also, I admire books with Sloth because it's, it's quite hard to, to pull off. I mean, it's very easy to get bored. Yeah. And you, know? you, you would imagine that there are a lot of uh, novels out there written with slothful main characters that never see the light of day because they oh, become too right. inert, you know, but it, it does feel yeah. like a very teenage, you know, to have a first person meandering teenage or something angst about sloth in the sense that we're talking about where it's a person who can't act, who, who feels like the game is rigged and there's no point. It's, it's better to just uh, think your own thoughts and, and maybe love a, an author or a, a a band or some kind of activity that you treasure comic books or something. But, but then when it comes to school or getting a job or doing something active like that, uh, you just think, Oh, you, you know, yeah, go ahead, start up that charity or, <laughs> you, you know, I'm just going to be here in my room and, and this is the real world. This is the only way for me to act. And, you know, I'm just going to paint my room black and live here. And with an eye toward the future, I think sloth is going to be even more of a prominent topic because of the way technology is, you know, providing us with access to everything all the time and mm. constantly bombarding us with images. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about like in Italy, the slow food movement mm -hmm. and the little moments of rebellion against, you know, technology and hyper everything, I think sloth can be very comforting. Yeah. Slow so, down. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I, I personally, you know, and fighting, trying to fight the good fight against going as fast as I can. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think people are already talking. I mean, from the very first days of quarantine, people were talking about, oh, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to see all these essays by people who say, you know, quarantine, as bad as it was, and as much as it was due to a lot of pain and suffering, looking back on the experience, I never felt closer to my family or I never, you know, it, it was a time when I stopped and re had had a moment to reevaluate where I was in life and stuff like that. It, it really is this sort of enforced uh, yeah. laziness or enforced sloth uh, that kind of <laughs> makes you realize what a rat race you're living in the rest of the time. I've been calling my mother every day and I'm I'm reading I'm reading ten books at a time. So, <laughs> so it's been right. nice. Yeah. And that's you know, so that's not lazy. That's just reprioritizing, but it's um it's good. Okay. So I'll take the last one. We are going to leave uh well I'll save it, I guess. I'm going to take pride. Uh, Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy that that's the last one? I actually had it as one of my 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 picks originally oh really yeah. yeah well yeah as i thought more about it i just thought well it's you know being proud isn't really a sin until you go overboard but you can make mistakes you know due to your pride pride and prejudice is kind of an obvious example of that but yeah. ultimately i just thought when it comes out in books it's a little fairy tale like that it's 
what interest is there in pride? Because a little dose of it is healthy and normal. You want people to be, you don't want them to, to not have any pride. But if someone is too proud, it just seems like, okay, well, they're getting ready for their comeuppance. That, you know, what's to explore there? You're proud and eventually you won't be. Someone will undermine you or you'll have a reason not to be proud. Or you're not proud at all and eventually you will be. It just didn't feel as interesting as wrath or envy or, or lust. I, I think what you said about it being a fairy tale, I felt like pride was an old sin. Mm, that it's yeah. no longer, it's almost no longer applicable today because, I mean, look who's our president. Look who's, you know, who our celebrities are. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was reading, I'm right now reading a Hemingway biography and in the 20s, you know, the, the, the newspaper would have an article about the next upcoming great author. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just can't imagine a piece like that running in a newspaper today. <laughs> right. I mean, they would never spend, yeah. they would never commit the space to write, like, basically, like a hybrid op-ed piece, but really just kind of a general cultural piece. Yeah. Like, you would never, so I feel like pride is one of these things that nobody is interested in exploring it. Yeah. I've actually got two sins that I think could easily make it onto a, a modern day list of deadly sins. <laughs> so let's let's give gluttony a little bit of do here. That's the one we didn't take. Yeah. That was it's interesting. Seventh on my list. I just think it's not interesting. This is really the realm of children's books like Augustus Gloop is sort yeah, of the Willy Wonka, <laughs> um, yeah, Ralph Dahl. Yep. Yeah. Or uh Jabba the Hutt is uh you could say yeah. is a glutton. It's it's kind of cartoonish. And if gluttony is accompanied by self-hatred, it's kind of sad. It's not, it's not something you'd want your hero to have. It's, it's more like a children's book where you want them to realize why they're being gluttonous and that they need to, uh, they, they shouldn't have such a poor self-image and, and they, there's a reason for them to feel a little better about themselves. It's, you know, it's just not as interesting as the selfish sins, uh, yeah. like greed or lust. It's selfishness for food, but we kind of associate that with more like a, a disorder than like a psychological hole that you're trying to fill. Yeah, no, I, I, I felt the same. It was, it was, I, I, I thought that, you know, it, it could be really good in like cartoons. Yeah. And children's books. Right. So, so here's a couple of uh, sins that I think would probably be on the list if people were drawing up seven deadly sins today vanity would mm. fit you know yeah. you mentioned our president but it it is kind of a uh we're much more likely to say that it's a problem that someone cares too much about their looks than than that they're gluttonous yeah and then the biggest one is prejudice uh i think that would be very high on the list today of a uh a sin that um is in literature and it's in life, but it's really not on here. The, uh, the idea that you would, uh, hate someone for who they were for their appearance or their race or anything like that. It's a negative and it's widespread and it's, it's very powerful and very pervasive. And it's interesting to see, it doesn't really fit into any of these seven deadly sins. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it, it's almost like the less, the more wholesome take on wrath you know, mm. yeah. Um, there's something about the sins that you mean the less violent, 
take yeah, yeah. Like the sins are meant to be um extreme yeah and uh prejudice is almost like reason you can reason through it or uh, reason with yeah so yeah i guess that's right it's not uh and and it's connected with you know sins against god so these other things are um they're viewed as character traits that would take you away from god and maybe uh for some reason prejudice just wasn't uh, on their radar when they were coming up with the sins yeah i was going to say you, you, when I, when i was preparing for this you know i i thought about the the edict that there are really only seven stories mm-hmm. and there's you know the the writers uh loop back to these sins all the time but i th- i think what makes these sins really come alive are are the author's voices and it's it's a, it's a curious thing that an author can inha- inhabit a voice to bring a sin like lust like lolita uh was on my list for lust and mm. you know the the challenge with any sin because it's so extreme is once you decide that this is going to be one of your themes um the voice really has to carry the day yeah and it, it it it's it was it was a fun thing to prepare for because I just felt like it was kind of a review of which books that I turn to when I'm in a particular mood. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I go to the road by Cormac McCarthy a fair bit. So. <laughs> uh, I've got another exercise for us to do here. That each deadly sin has a corresponding cardinal virtue. Mm-hmm. And I had the theory that uh, my hypothesis was that the sins would be better for literature than virtues. There's a reason why the seven deadly sins are more famous than the the seven cardinal virtues. But I thought I would name the virtue for each of the sins and make sure that we agree that the sin is more productive from a literary standpoint than the virtue. <laughs> okay, so the first one you took was wrath. Uh, the cardinal virtue, the uh, the in opposition to wrath, is patience. Oof. I think wrath, almost like, wrath yeah. works. Wrath works yeah. so much better, right? <laughs> yeah, patience is patience is pretty it's all it's the whole like you know, all unhappy fa- all happy families yeah. are the same. Yep. All unhappy families are different, you know? Yeah. Like if you have one wrathful person, you have a novel just based on that. Two wrathful yeah. people, it's great. You've got a scene you could have 10 wrathful people and it would still work. But if you have 10 patient people in a novel, you'd be looking for the wrath. You know, you'd be waiting for something yeah. to disrupt that uh, calmness. It oh. reminds me of of office meetings where everyone's complimenting each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Patience. And what do you do when you're in an office meeting like that? My guess is you uh, you find some passive aggressive way to insult somebody. I usually text people pictures of my cats. Because <laughs> they get a text on their phone and then they urgently look at it because they think it's important. And then I kind of like look at them to see if they'll smile. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to put on the uh the they, face for everyone else that they were smile, just doing something really clearly, important. Yeah. <laughs> it's clearly like they're looking at something inappropriate and unrelated to the meeting. Right. So. But the the fact that they interrupted their important business. Yeah activity to take the text means they they don't want to acknowledge you know it's like uh it's like when you're doing something on your phone 
I don't know if you've ever done this. I did this once at work doing uh-huh. something with your phone and, you know, they can be thinking, oh, he's probably keeping up with another matter or doing some other, you know, talking to some different client or doing some different thing for work. Uh, right. And then all of a sudden, like, the uh, browser automatically starts playing and it, the music oh, from yeah. an ad or something. And you're just like, like, yeah. oh, wait, that's the ESPN theme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never go online because of that yeah. in a meeting. But <laughs> but I, I, the other thing, I th- if you're going to send pictures of cats, you got to send it. You got to send a barrage to a bunch of people in the room. You can't just send it to one. <laughs> so they all get it at the same time and they're all like looking at their phone. Uh, okay good advice so uh (laughs) let's go through this list envy is the sin kindness is the virtue and again i i like kind people in life and i like them in books but envy is just kind of a better subject it's i'm not even sure i like kind people in life (laughs) (laughs) so but i agree with you yep uh where are we i'll just run through these pride is the sin humility is the virtue again there's no real conflict in humility unless pride sneaks in or unless another character is agitated by the humility that can be kind of interesting humility and lust can be interesting i feel Mm. like the whole like you know david foster wallace i think uses this uh in the pale king a number of times where an IRS worker who is asexual mm. is beset upon by an incredibly hot uh, coworker. Mm. So right, well, that's uh, the cardinal virtue for lust is chastity, mm. which yeah. again, you could imagine a good book about chastity, but it it's almost like interesting as the absence of lust. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and on the other hand, I I could imagine like a couple good books about chastity, but if you read more than one or two, they would probably kind of start to feel all the same, but you could have a hundred good books about lust that have no chastity in them whatsoever. Just I don't a, know about a hundred, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, chastity doesn't need to be part of a book about lust and lust yeah. or a book about chastity would almost have to include lust at some point. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, okay. Uh, the sin is greed. The virtue is charity. I don't know. I don't see many novels about the problems of charity, the difficulty of a, <laughs> a charitable spirit or the agonies of a protagonist who's wrecked by a charitable impulse, maybe. Those characters seem like they're secondary. They're foils or muses, the ones off to the side that the protagonist admires or that we, the readers, admire, but they're kind of cardboard figures. Yeah, you know, I just realized that a lot of the cardinal virtues are the themes of many nonfiction, mm. you know, bestsellers. Like how to be that, more charitable. Yeah, yeah just yeah. You know, someone who's dedicated their life to like, yeah. you know, being chased. I mean, yep. I, I, nothing comes to mind, but I mean, basically these, these books where you, you you want to be a better person and you have this like, real yep. life example. So you read the book and you feel better about yourself without actually doing anything that's interesting because we want literature to be like life maybe nonfiction in this instance is less like life we're we're looking at the nonfiction is escapist yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) well like someone who's you know if it's a book about uh, a chaste person that might be hard to identify with or it might not ring true it might be one in a million but if it's a book about um 
lust, that's something that, you know, everybody can has gone through that period or can can uh, recognize themselves in a character who's driven by lust. I, I mentioned that because I've been reading a lot more nonfiction in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that really enjoys the information. But mm. then another part of me that is just kind of like fatigued mm. by yeah. how do-goody yeah. Do gooder, everyone is. <laughs> I mean, it really is right. kind of just like either I should be doing good or I should be just doing something, doing something rather yeah. than reading about people's do gooding. Right. Well, here you go. The sin is sloth, the virtue <laughs> is diligence. So, uh, diligence is like that must be the number one topic for, uh, yeah, nonfiction ten, for self-help minute, books. Yeah, yeah, the one-minute manager and fifteen yep. good habits. Yeah, yeah. How do you fit more into your day? How do you get more done? How do you? How can you be more energetic? And it does make you kind of uh, value sloth. It, it, I would rather read about a, a Bartleby. Yeah, I can think of one good book about diligence, though. Uh, what makes Sammy run? Mm. Yeah, I I love that book. I think it's. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it really is like the the happy story of somebody who works his way up from the mailroom to become the executive of, a, you know, producer of a film studio. Yeah. Yeah. Movies kind of boil this down in a different way. I think yeah. you'd, you'd, you'd yeah. rather watch a movie about a diligent character and root for them than you right. would about a slothful person. Maybe because we don't have the same access to their inner life, but a... Uh, a slothful protagonist in a movie might just come across as kind of self-absorbed and and moody. Yeah. And okay, last one: sin is gluttony, virtue is temperance. That's uh, I mean, <laughs> I don't think we're, <laughs> I don't think either one is all that great for a novel, actually. <laughs> well, you know, as you say these, I, I wonder if certain novels, like my memory may not serve me, but how good where some of these characters like Jude the Obscure. Yeah. Like my memory of him is that he was this exceptionally good person. Mm. Yeah. Well, so. yeah. And if you have someone like that and you visit all kinds of problems on them, you yeah. know, then you're kind of like in the world of, uh, it's like the book of Job, you know, where right. someone is uh, long suffering and you watch, um, you know, you can root for people when they're just dealt with one blow after another. Uh, and you want them to be good. If 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 Jude had been, uh, you know, manipulative or evil, you'd feel like, well, he's getting punished. Uh, right. It's not. Uh, it's not maybe super interesting if you you have a motivation like that for their. Unless it's I don't know. Then it's sort of more of like a revenge tale, I guess. That can be interesting too. Sometimes it's nice to see the the bad guys get hurt. I wonder if a thousand years from now people will cobble together uh, these stories. And create a makeshift Bible. Mm. <laughs> You'd have to include Cormac McCarthy. You know? <laughs> right. That like the way they uh, put together stories like Noah or uh, yeah. Moses. Yeah, they've got uh, some. Oh, that might be an interesting idea for a show. We could put together uh, 10 books of the Bible that we draw. We, we each take five stories like... Uh, Madame Bovary and imagine them as as being a book in the Bible. 
in our future Bible. That kind of reminds me of this idea that I used to have when I was in high school and I was going to all these sporting events. And you'd mm-hmm. go to like a gymnasium and you'd look down and on the uh, on the floor in the middle, there'd be like a, a blue devil or there'd be, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a Viking or there'd be a mascot that's painted on the floor. And I right. thought, uh, you know, if this uh, if we go up in this nuclear holocaust and people are gone for 10,000 years and then people come back and they dig up these uh, high school gymnasiums, they'll probably think that these were gods that were worshipped and that this was a <laughs> an arena of, uh, <laughs> you know, like like more like a temple than a mm-hmm. uh, a sporting event. <laughs> Who knows? Okay, well, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. The Seven Deadly Sins. My thanks to Pope Gregory the Great, Dante, and Mike Palindrome, the usual three. In other words, how many times have those three been lumped together? They're like the three musketeers. My thanks to all of them for joining me, and to Edgar Allan, why not? He played his little part here today. My thanks to the people who wrote in their emails today for us to read. Give me such pleasure. My thanks to the many Christians who wrestled with these deadly sins and the many authors who took them on in whole or in part, and to my listeners, who I call angels and saints all the time, and maybe you are, but maybe you also have a little sin in you too, because you are human after all, and you know what? That's okay. I love you all anyway. I love you in spite of your sins, and here's my own dirty little secret. I love you all because of your sins. I love the struggle. I love, love, love the struggle. Keep up the good fight, people. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) ¶¶